In the far north of Australia, the Aboriginal Areas Protection Authority brought a gutsy desecration lawsuit against O.M. Manganese for deliberately damaging an indigenous sacred site called Two Women Sitting Down at its Buto Creek Manganese mine. Two Women Sitting Down appears as a rock and earth formation and was registered as an Aboriginal sacred site under the Northern Territory Aboriginal Sacred Site Act. In her judgment in this case, uh, the judicial magistrate uh, Sue Oliver noted, quote, there's no dispute that the geological feature of the subject of all these charges is a sacred site. Nor was there any dispute in this uh, uh, trial about indigenous insights into the formation of Two Women City Down. Oliver, again the magistrate, uh, notes or cites a 1982 anthropology consultant's report that two women sitting down consists of, quote, two female dreamtime ancestors, a bandicoot and a rat. The bandicoot had only two children, while the rat had many, so the bandicoot tried to take one of the rat's children, which then caused them to fight. The manganese owl crops at the area, the Butu manganese mine, of which the sacred site is a whole part of, represents the blood of these ancestors. And if you know manganese, it's red. Given that the report in the judgment considers two women sitting down a geological formation represented by a narrative structure that is external to it, it perhaps goes without saying that the lawsuit was not prosecuted as manslaughter, attempted murder, or murder, but as a desecration under a criminal liability law. The case then pivoted on whether O.M. Manganese intentionally wrecked features of the site when it, when it dug uh, vertically next to it, undermining its foundations. And the lawsuit was a classic face-off, I think, between a, somewhat of a David and Goliath, that is a small, underfunded state agency suing a large international, though Australian-located um, corporation. The Aboriginal Areas Authority uh, was established in 1978 under the Northern Territory Sacred Sites Act as part of a broad reconsideration of indigenous culture in national law, so it's 1982. However, progressive, the initial idea of setting up the Sacred Sites Authority Legislative amendments and hostile governments have continually narrowed and underfunded or defunded its ma mandate since 1982. Owen Manganese, nevertheless, lost the case, but the actual fine of Owen Manganese was pretty small for a mining company. That is, it was only $150,000. And the indigenous custodians of the site, who were the claimants in the lawsuit, received none of this money because under certain changes in the sacred sites law, when lawsuits like this are lodged, any kind of recompense doesn't go to the indigenous claimants or suitors, but rather to the state government. <laughs> Unfortunately, two women sitting down was not the first and won't be the last place to be destroyed by our contemporary ravenous quest for mineral wealth. The extent of current rates of mineral extraction on the geological and meteorological conditions of the planet is difficult to quantify, although we, we have some sense and it's not good. But the global extractive industries will hardly be deterred by the kind of legal setback that two women sitting down um, uh, gives us. It's far more likely, of course, that in national and international contexts, that mining industries and the extractive industry uh, more broadly will attack the foundations of such claims. So, for instance, in um, Australia, uh, Gina Reinhart, who is one of the, and I'll talk about her more as we go along, who's one of, uh, who's the, who, at one point she was 37th richest person in the world, and she's definitely the richest person in Australia, and the owner of um, a big mining company, uh, has actively, um, over the course of her life, has actively um, and aggressively fought to undermine any kind of rights of indigenous people over subsoil um, uh, deposits, so mine, mining um, and minerals. And indeed, 
when she was when a uh, when a, the then Prime Minister Julia Gillard tried to uh, impose a carbon tax or do a carbon tax on the mining industry, Reinhardt purchased uh, ten television networks and Fairfax Media to attack and undermine the carbon tax. The desecration then, and partial destruction of two women sitting down, is a material condensation of a critical f question facing current global thought and politics. Is the desire to live in a specific way killing our planet? Is the insistence on a form of life, that is, a form of life that consists of capital markets, creative capital, technological innovations, this building, the air conditioning, the, the smartphones in my bag and yours, is the, is, are these forms of life, this form of life, creating the wastelands and deserts that are inevitably going to annul our existence? In other words, is the Anthropocene, that the geological age of human being, the last age of human being, and the first age of the Earth becoming Mars? That is, a planet once awash in life, but now a dead orb hanging in the night sky. Is two women sitting down like Mars, there, certainly, but there for us only as a cautionary tale? That is, is it is two women sitting down and Mars, there, only as a mirror in which we imagine some other extraterrestrial Edgar Allan Burroughs, or, oh, sorry, Edgar Rice Burroughs, gazing? Can we even say that a human way of life is killing the planet, or this planet, or a planet, if we can't say that OM mining or OM manganese killed or murdered two women sitting down, right? Remember, it's a desecration lawsuit. But of course, I would expect many of us to think I was speaking metaphorically. That is, a specific way of life and the beings attached to this way of life are not killing the earth. Of course, you can't kill something that doesn't have life. They are destroying the conditions in which life is, or a form of life is possible. But, they, that is their, but if we can only speak metaphorically, that is, oh, you know, I'm just using a metaphor, then we are not only excluding the indigenous perspective that brought the desecration suit, but we're also excluding two women sitting down from making any claim on the organization and distribution of sense in the current politics that organizes us. What I want to do then today is really just walk through what is the first chapter of a book I'm working on or finishing writing called Geontologies, A Requiem to Late Liberalism. So it's a real optimistic <laughs> book. And in fact, I coined this term geontology to indicate what I think is a disruption of a previous formation of power, or maybe as a mnemonic placeholder for the formation of power that's been existing for a while, but we haven't quite understood. And thus the book asks, and I ask, and I'm going to ask in this paper, how do we understand the current formation of power in which we seem to be existing, outside of the four figures of power that were so crucial to Foucault's understanding of biopower. And remember the four figures were the masturbating child, the hysterical woman, the Malthusian couple, and the perverse adult. That is, these four figures, discourses and strategies, was for Foucault symptomatic of the governance of life, that is, the formation of power. What geontology suggests, and what I'm going to try and do in this talk through two women sitting down, and two women sitting down's exclusion from the realm of politics, is to suggest that biopolitics is not merely the governance of life and the way in which we've come to understand it in all the complex literature on biopolitics and biopower, but rather it's the continuing governance of a distinction between life and non-life. That is not life and death, but life and non-life. 
bios and geos. And that to understand this formation of power, we can't have those four figures anymore. Those four figures are in some ways irrelevant. Instead, other figures suggest themselves. For instance, the animist and contemporary, the new animism and new vitalism has its theoretical space. The terrorist, both green and red in the new security studies that have arisen out of here. And the desert and radical ecological studies. That is, these figures and their emergent theoretical space perhaps are symptomatic or help us understand what is this we're in. All right. When I say then that, ex that if we can only speak metaphorically and say we don't really kill something like two women sitting down because it's not alive, but if we can't say we're killing two women sitting down because it's not alive, it's, it's rock, then we are excluding two women sitting down and other things perhaps like two women sitting down from making any claim on the organization and distribution of sense. When I say that, of course, I'm here loosely engaging Jacques Rancière's political topology in which politics is the emergence of a dissensus within the given distribution of the sensible and the particular way that this distribution of the sensible counts and accounts for its own distribution. That is, you know, why do I say that there's life and non-life and I give account of that. Both I create life and non-life and then I give an account of why I do that. Within the late liberal demos, for instance, two women sitting down is a geological formation within this division, is a geological formation that can be represented as a bandicoot rat and their blood after they fought, but which is nevertheless placed within, placed in a very different epistemological, political, economic, and ethical set of categories than the two men running the massive earth movers digging into its side. It's important to note for Ronsier, the concrete measure then of the demos at any given time is rooted in exactly the aesthetic, rhetorical, and reasoned manner in which this division or divisions like that come to make sense. And we have a certain kind of background attachment to that sense. But I think we fundamentally misunderstand the shadow that two women sitting down casts on our political thought and, I think, the thought of Rancière. If we think that these two women, two women sitting down, the rocks, the manganese, are a site where the settler state and indigenous people fight over land and goods. That is, it's just an, it, a space in which this other fight is happening. But neither will we solve the political problem that these two women pose by including indigenous culture into the demos. So that's the other way we've done it. Well, we just bring in their voice, and then they'll be. Then two women are sitting down because it's part of indigenous culture. So I'm not suggesting that we include the indigenous, far from it, but I am arguing that the problem two women sitting down presents the late liberal, liberal demos is not a problem of cultural recognition. It's not a problem that, you know, recognizing the worth of the other is going to solve. And besides, I have a very negative attitude on that one anyways. Okay, but we know that. If the indigenous people who are looking after two women sitting down or anything like friends of mine in the north, they're not conveying a cultural narrative when they testify to the existence of sites like this formation. They're rather engaged in an analytics of entities. Namely, they're engaged in detail, a detailed examination of places like two women sitting down, so as to, term, to, to determine its nature, its structure, its features, its extensions, its ability to change over time, etc. It's this analytics of entities and its social and ethical entailment, not cultural belief, that creates the dissensus in the sensible arrangements of late liberalism, or that's my claim. It's their analytic, not their cultural belief. Why? Three points. First, two women sitting down is a condition, and not just two women sitting down, but using this as an example, is a condition of the late liberal demos, and late liberalism more broadly, insofar as manganese and other minerals, such as manganese, is a critical component 
to both productive and creative capital, both whether you're on the side of you know, labor, um, capital, commodity capital, or the kind of post-degree creative capital. Manganese and other minerals like it are a condition of that liberal government. And you pick up your smartphone. It's a condition of it. But the condition is exclu excluded from the governance of it. Right? So two women sitting down is crucial to us getting manganese, but two women sitting down is excluded from the having any say in the governance of manganese. Second, the excluded inclusion of two women sitting down is accounted by, that is, it's both the distribution of the sensible and an account of why it's distributed this way, if you're in Ranciere land. It's accounted, by, it's accounted for by what I'm calling the carbon imaginary, namely a set of practical ideas that a specific element and process creates, making a fundamental distinction between life and non-life. In other words, the distinction between life and non-life, that is, you two women sitting down and those two women sitting down, is a problematic in the sense that the division constitutes a problem that then must continually be answered. Like, what is the difference between life and non-life? How do we make it appear? So there's non-life here and life here, simply and obviously. This problem, I think, is intensified, that is, how do we make the distinction anymore, is intensified, the problem is intensified rather than overcome, obviously by the, in the wake of climate science and the concept of the Earth as a self-regulated kind of life, that is the Gaia concept, is making this distinct, distinction more problematic, and so we keep on, people keep on trying to do it in one way or another. Finally, the conceptualization of the demos as merely the governance of life, that is our theories of biopolitics, um, but also, of course, biopolitics as the governance of logo, logos, makes the kinds of pressures that two women sitting down place on governance illegible. That is, not only can't two women sitting down be killed because it's not alive, but anytime you say it speaks, and I talk about this in the larger uh, way of the uh, larger version of this chapter, you by necessity are made to either make it speak in the language of the human or through a semiotic process that's conversant to it. I think we begin to understand the political and ethical challenges of both this ge geontological formation, that is this non-life being, like two women sitting down, and others like it, by agreeing with a growing number of climate experts who are urgently calling for a new dialogue among natural, the natural sciences, the social sciences, the philosophies, the humanities, and the arts. So that's one of the things you hear. You go to Anthropocene. We all got to get together. And your, their argument is that we have to open up channels of communication across these disciplines that have been severed as they've developed. That is, scientists, philosophers, anthropologists, politicians, and artists need to gather up all their wisdom and develop a level of mutual literacy in order to cross-pollinate their severed lineages if we're going to have any chance of saving the conditions of our life. But when we bring two women sitting down, and other places like it, into this conversation amongst these lineages that are all going to, we're going to know how to talk to each other again, we find that at the same time we need to think about how they've drifted apart, anthropology, natural sciences, critical theory, the arts. We also need to interrogate what's been conserved across these severed branches of knowledge. And what two women sitting down and other places like it suggest is that two things have been conserved, and this is really what I want to put pressure on today. On, the, on one hand, first, there's a conservation between things that we think are probably pretty far apart, the natural sciences and critical theory right now, in particular today, uh, theories of biopower. I would suggest that there is a shared epistemological uh, horizon, first, insofar as 
and I'm going to try and outline why, they, on the two extreme ends of this, maintain a distinction between life and non-life. That is the basis of our critical theory and also our critical political philosophy and the natural sciences, a distinction between life and non-life. It absolutely governs what we're doing, and I'm going to try and unpack that. The second is a collapse of our understanding of beings or being or entities into our understanding of a particular kind of being, that is, a life being, and what geontology exposes as not ontology but biontology. That is, our theories of ontology are really theories of biontology, according to what I'm trying to figure out here. So let me say a little bit about each one of these, and then I'm going to talk a little bit about the natural sciences and a little bit about um, a, a strand in, of critical theory that runs from Kangyam through Foucault into Agamben, and then I'm going to wind up. First, the distinction between life and non-life is, I would claim, seen in the separation of bios, or bios and zoe, and geos, so on the one hand, bios, zoe, on the other hand, geos. And all their cognate forms, biology and geology, biochemistry and geochemistry, etc. On the basis of three metabolic processes. Not hard, I mean, it's birth, growth and reproduction, and death, on the one hand and a somewhat mysterious effort of persist persisting on the other. These two, something like effort and birth and death, creates a certain kind of what I would call a carbon imaginary, that allows us to self-evidently distinguish that which is alive and that which is not. The collapse of our understanding of being, and here I'm really meaning ontology, the, the, our, our ways of approaching and what we dwell on when we thinking through ontology. collapse of our understanding of being into an understanding of a particular kind of being, that is a life being, is equally important if we're going to think the formation of power in right suggested by two women sitting down. And what I'm suggesting is that there is a transposition of the of something like a biological concept of life centered on processes of birth growth, reproduction, and death, and this semi-mysterious effort thing, conatos, but now life conatos, has created a biontological doxa in which you see transposed across into our discussions of ontology, event, birth, growth, reproduction, conatus, persistence, and death, Finitude. That is, these three elements of contemporary theories of ontology. The problem of event, we can name names. The problem of conatos, we can name names. And the problems of finitude, we can name names. Are these, is this underlying, I don't think it's biology transposing into philosophy or philosophy transposing on biology, but the, the emergence of a shared horizon. That becomes absolutely critical if we're going to think about the formation of power we're in and why it is that something like two women sitting down is such a challenge to it, to this formation. So what I want to do is just first walk through some of the sciences in a kind of flat-footed way, then turn to philosophy, try and just sketch this out a little more, and then return to why two women sitting down can't break through this framework. Because I don't think it actually can break through this framework. That's what I find interesting about it. That's why it's a requiem to lay the belief. Okay, the natural sciences. In the natural sciences, division between life and non-life is, of course, foundational to separation of the geosciences and biosciences, geochemistry and biochemistry, geology and biology. 
how biochemists and biologists define the difference between life and non-life is a technical matter and involves technical apparatuses and infrastructures that are unique to that field, these fields. A standard biochemical definition of life, and this is just very standard, is a, a physical compartmentation from the environment and self-organization of self-contained reactions, which is reduction and oxidation. Uh, As any beginning chemistry student knows, this way of defining life makes the cell the smallest unit of life and makes carbon the key component of naturally occurring life on Earth. Now, there's also very famously, um, uh, uh, um, oh, Lord, jet lag. Um, oh, what are those little bugs in the uh, in the pools in Colorado? Um, I'm not saying Xeon. Xeon? No, there's it's not Xeon. They're um, blank life, non-carbon life. But it's, it's actually not non-carbon life. It's, oh, come on, science and technology studies. <laughs> yes, but they're, and they use, instead of uh, carbon for certain features of redox, they, um, they use, oh, okay, forget it. Okay, I'll tell you. It's just, trust me, even the ones that we think might be, trust me. <laughs> we think we, maybe we found non-carbon life, it's actually still carbon, it uses a different, it's on Star Trek as well. <laughs> hey, jet lag, okay, it doesn't matter, okay. Anyways, let's just say that's why carbon, this ability to engage in redox in order to contain, to separate yourself out and self-organize is, is the key component of naturally occurring life on Earth. By metabolizing nutrients outside themselves, cells are the, we think are the smallest unit of existence that can experience birth. They can be born. And they're the smallest unit of existence that have the power to replicate themselves independently. And they're the smallest units of existence that can undergo their own death. And this is why, again, it's this beautiful understanding of life. Um, indeed, cells from, and I love it, but biologists describe and biochemists say that cells can actually have a good death um, and a bad death, uh, which is beautiful because their life has its own kind of moral structure. Um, that is, a good death is a tidy death, and I'm just, this is actually just pulling out of their uh, rhetoric, in which the cell, cell self-destructs, and the cell can have an untidy death, and that's a bad death, in which the cell um, uh, swells, leaks, and explodes. In other words, the carbon imaginary is built out of the problem of a specific kind of event. That is, the carbon imaginary is captured within the problem of eventness, qua event. That is, the event, the break, between non-life to life. So it's, you know, a lot of the questions are what are the geochemical conditions that were in place for biochemistry? Uh, um, that is, how did the one, the, the existence to life, this thing, emerge from the zero, the nothing, and then with death, kind of sink back into it? Within this carbon imaginary, other entities such as Mars or inner Earth or two women sitting down, but really Mars, not too in the city now, but let's say Mars, we approach it as a kind of ur-missing link, Mars in particular, not as a missing link between man or humans and their predecessor species, but the missing link between life and non-life. What conditions of prebiotic broth led to the first cellular processes? What are the geochemical conditions in which a break from non-life to life emerged? How does life in the new geobiochemistry, that's a really interesting field right now, how does the emergence of life then affect the biochemistry so that life actually um, terraforms geochemistry so that it can either exist more, or in our case, in the Anthropocene, maybe less? That is, um, uh, the, we ask these questions, all these questions about you know, how, what, what's the dynamic between geos and bios, even though biochemists and geochemists would be the first to note that although to be a life, a living thing must be structurally and functionally compartmentalized from its environment, it can't be hermetically sealed off from it. 
life absorbs and extrudes its outsides. Oxygen is a beautiful example. Um, and this estimate relation of life and non-life puts both at risk, both life and non-life. It's, it's actual um, components, structures, for instance. When a biological life brings the outside inside, it risks its structural and functional form and integrity. Think about swallowing a little, you know, I don't know what chemical you want to swallow. And then you have a very untidy death, you leak, you explode, and you extrude. And you extrude into your own environment that then someone comes and eats from and also cycles it back. So a lot of the very interesting um, uh, work being done on what we could go up environmental biochemistry is the recycling in New York, we know this is kind of recycling through urine into waterways, all the pharmaceuticals that we're all inhabiting, and then we're just drinking them, especially in New York, that's why we're also calm. <laughs> <laughs> but this also, this leakage and extrusion of this extimate relationship between bios and geos is also true of what we put on the geo side. So not only do rocks like two women sitting down, but other kinds of mountain features, change wind patterns and thus affect the meteorological condition of local and more regional um, uh, uh, life. We could say that, of course, soil has respiratory conditions, and then we start thinking, well, how much is this an actual, a metaphor, or how much are we just technically describing it, such that in the combination, all these things that we say are geochemistry or geology, come to be themselves conditioned by their outsides. And yet, the idea, even as geologists, geochemists, biochemists, geobiochemists, if you don't know this, this is a great new field, even as we keep saying this, all these things, nevertheless, the idea of birth, of growth, and of death provides, I think, this reassuring skin around certain kinds of existence, that is, the life ones. Well, we can really tell where life is because we look around to see what can die. Indeed, the concept is of life, I think, is the skin we experience as keeping us here and of a different nature than those two female rocks. Why is this? And how does it relate to what I'm calling a kind of biontological doxa between two disciplinary fields that might seem to be much further apart or even opposed. For instance, let's go to critical theories of life and its governance. <coughs> Although their techniques for producing and accounting for objects may seem worlds apart, critical theory, critical philosophies, cultural theory, I think share with the natural sciences a fraught encounter and reproduction of the division between life and non-life. For instance, in Afterlife, Eugene Thacker asks why, quote, every ontology of life thinks of life in terms of something other than life. Thacker seems, sees the other than life as most often represented through metaphysical concepts such as time and temporality, form and causality, or spirit and imminence. So that's where the non-life comes in. He thinks in in, in uh, most ontologies. But perhaps the oldest and most persistent problematic pivots on this distinctions between entities, that is the non-life life, that is the other than life, on the basis of something that is inert and is all actuality, and something that's dynamic, that is composed of potentiality and actuality. Something that you could say continues, the inert thing, and something we could say perseveres, <coughs> the dynamic thing. And you can take this all the way back to Aristotle if you really want to, with the soul as a critical component. You could, I actually start thinking of the carbon imaginary's contemporary Aristotelian soul, but not, I won't do that. Now, if I'm going to say that, huh, what these, these two fields that have different technologies, different infrastructures, different objects, um, actually have a background, a shared background in distinguishing life and non-life on the basis of metabolic processes, 
that is this carbon imaginary, then I would at least have to reckon with places in which this does not seem to be the case at all. That is, there seems to be a very critical encounter between critical theory and biology. That is, those bio-philosophers like Kang Yim, who was a careful reader of Aristotle, where we could, you know, he himself tried to think about how the soul and this division between life and non-life emerged. But someone like Kang Yim argued that the biochemical and biological reduction of life to abstract forms and function, that is, when I said, you know, bio, biologists dis, uh, define life as blah, 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 Kang Yim, long time ago, in now-ish, not so long, I was born, so I can't do that long. Anyways, um, Kang Yim was very critical of this, what he called the biological reduction of life to its forms and function, because he argued that biologists fundamentally misunderstood what was essential to life. Namely, and this is Kang Yim, namely, quote, the spontaneous effort peculiar to life to struggle against that which obstructs its preservation and development taken as a set of norms. For Kang Yim, and he saw this in opposition to biologists, and here we have, you know, on side Esposito, who takes Kang Yim and opposes Kang Yim and Heidegger to, say, the Nazi use of uh, biology. For Kang Yim, life is not abstract, uh, an abstract process and definition. Life is an effort of persisting in an ever-altering environment, creatively maneuvering and adjusting, and slowly, perhaps at the end, coming to be a life coming to be something different than it was in the beginning, because it has this effort and then it strategically adjusts from the point of view of the life itself. But it's exactly this preservation of life's difference from non-life, from life from its objective parameters, such as a bunch of rocks we might sit on, that is, the separation of life from all that's inert and not dynamic with this effort business. Life from all uh, from that which is only actuality, that indeed interests me here. Here's one of our, I think, smartest, you know, most creative at the time, in the, the this kind of the er source of theories of biopolitics, attacking biological biological sciences only to separate more dramatically and absolutely bios from geos. A more recent example of this, I think, is someone that we might think would be, again, a great place to go, because you think, okay, Giorgio Agamben, the open, post-human, right? Here's someone who's critically investigating, at least supposedly, the, the politics of the governance of bios as opposed to bare life sowing. And here again is someone who is thinking very carefully and critically at the intersection of Aristotle and Heidegger. So he kind of knows all the way back and he's thinking about that early division. And someone who is deeply engaged in Heidegger. Oh, I said that already. Okay. And here again is, although, is someone far from classical and modern laboratories of the natural sciences. But Agamben is someone that, instead of breaking it in this way, that is, bios and geos, I think, once again, resurrects not only bios as exceptional, but here, human being as exceptional in the hierarchy of life. And I think we see this most deeply in the very work that we think would take him away, that is, in his work on potentiality, the open, and the post-human. What do I mean by that? For all his deep reflections on the coming post-human animal, Agamben's rethinking of Aristotle's dynamis suggests the hold that the human difference and the difference between life and non-life continues to have on our thought. Remember that in Aristotle, 
there was the claim, Aristotle claim, that biological and non-biological substances are self-reflexive, that they can create this here-ness, and that the difference between living and non-living is that one living is animated by a soul and the other is not. For, a, uh, for Aristotle, this soul provides living things, acorns and humans, with the potential to be something they are and are not at the same time. The acorn can become an oak, right? Just like that. For Aristotle, rocks like two women sitting down on the planet Mars are just all actuality. They are what they are, and that's it. They continue, but it's hard to say they persist or have dynamism. Unlike Aristotle's formulation, though, Agamben distinguishes another form of potentiality. And some of you will know this. So we still have those forms of thingness that are all actuality, rocks, etc. And we have things that have potentiality, that is, acorns and oaks. But for Agamben, humans possess an extra form or different form of potentiality. That is, humans have the capacity the, both to have generic potentiality, that's what he calls it, that is, we you know, are born and grow, into, and grow into these kind of bodies, supposedly. I can learn technical skills, such as writing poetry, playing the piano. That is, we have generic potentiality like all other kinds of life. But humans also have the capacity, once they have this generic potentiality, to not be it or use it. I can write a poem, but I might not write a poem. And that's what he calls negative potentiality. So here's Agamben saying that we can bring other animals into the open, but we still are distinguished by our ability to have a form of power and not use it. That is, put it in the realm of negative potentiality. It's not my purpose to single out Agamben. It's not my purpose to single out Kanyem. Instead, I want to try and understand how it is, or that it is, I suppose, in the beginning, that across what would seem to be very different disciplinary formations, the very ones that the climate scientists, um, the problem of the Anthropocene, are asking us to bring into conversation together to solve the problem, are nevertheless themselves, these supposedly separated disciplines, all in agreement about the fundamental distinction between life and non-life. So that before we start the conversation, we've already locked into place a distinction that we need to get rid of to actually have the kind of conversation or at least political order that would lead to any robust understanding of A, the formation of power, or B, what we're going to do with it. So I have, I could go for 10 minutes. And I'll, well, I'll go, for ten, I'll go for five minutes and say this. The purpose of the book and what's left in this chapter is to say that this carbon imaginary, the one I'm trying to sketch out, isn't confined to these discursive fields. It's not like, well, philosophy has it and the sciences have it, and therefore we could change the discourse field and we'd be fine. Instead, and what I try and do in subsequent chapters, in this one and in subsequent is trying to show that the way that the uh, try and show the way in which this this presupposed background of what we could now call biontology, that geontology is meant to make appear, stretches across the infrastructure of late liberal capital and the govern late liberal governance of difference. That is, this carbon imaginary is in the practice of governance. And I will just say two ways. One and we really see it when we pull places like two women sitting down into the picture, one, that we govern difference, human difference, vis-a-vis the self-evident nature of the absolute difference between life and non-life. 
in relation to two women sitting down, the indigenous people who are considered by law, if you remember in the beginning, that is, they were recognized as the indigenous custodians of these sites, were recognized as indigenous custodians of these sites because they were able to demonstrate they believe two women sitting down is sentient. That is, they create their difference by believing something that is impossible within the practical disciplines of the law. See how different they are. Now, demonstrating that difference is fundamental, if you're indigenous, to your life possibilities, and indeed the possibility of keeping in place what I would call a, a very local geontology, that is keeping in place two women sitting down in other places like that, insofar as they can, if they can show through a belief that appears as difference because it refuses this division, they can put a little spigot in state funding. And if you're extraordinarily poor, that little spigot makes a lot of money for, for you. But in no way does the governance of difference, not only the governance of difference, not actually take seriously the analytics of these places, They've already presupposed it in creating a difference between people. Second, that's, and I can do that in a more full-fledged way. Um, and I think we also see this in a little bit in the Bolivian Constitution, but it's interesting. All these are examples of this division not quite working, even as it's always been here in the governance of difference. The second is governance of capital, <coughs> in which the extractive industries, on the one hand, the, the extractive industries and the creative industries, so we have both extractive and consumer capital, and then we have creative capital, supposedly, with Nagri et al. All both are working both at the, across this division. So if you had in productive capital an emphasis on the self-evident negativity of capital, say, through Marx, the extraction of the life forces. Right? So one of the ethical ways you could refuse, uh, one of the rhetorical ways Marx really made capital um, ethically uh, abhorrent is to conjure that extraction of life from the worker's body. With Negri then moving away from labor <coughs> as the you know, he claimed it's not the it's not the condition of capital anymore. Instead of this creative capital is condition of capital. And yet creative capital, which he sees as a potential to maybe break out of this form of market, depends on, and here we go right back to two women sitting down, depends on the minerals such as manganese. Manganese, gas, rare earths, and etc. to power the creative new digital commutative capital. Right? So it just presupposes its ability to do this without any ethical problem. Right? And part of, in the center of this is a augmented reality project we're trying to work on to save places like two women <coughs> sitting down, but it depends on people looking at them through a smartphone. And that smartphone has got to be made by capital, which is mining the crap out of the earth. Okay. Um, so, two women sitting down. In the hinterland of the Northern Territory is just one example of a range of geontologies that I think are all around us. And the question is, for the book and for us, I think, for friends of mine, for two women sitting down, is how can two women sitting down stand up to the kind of forces and divisions that are governing it? Not only the governance of life, that's not its problem. That's not their problem, the governance of life. Their problem is the governance of the division between life and non-life. The rest of the book takes up this and just kind of lays it out. But here, I would just say four principles that at least friends of mine who are what we would call alive <laughs> and human in Australia, indigenous friends and I, four principles in which they think would be the beginning of breaking out of a biontology. 
And I'm just going to say the four principles and sit down. One, the first principle is things exist only through an effort of mutual attention. That is, two women sitting down will only exist insofar as a number of existence are turned toward it. It's not just our eyeballs, but manganese, rocks, winds. This effort, they say, we say, is not in the mind, but in ethical practices, keeping attention and supporting a mode of existence that keeps attention pointed. Two, things then are neither, neither are born nor die. That is, you got to break out of this carbon imaginary. you got to break out of the, like, Oh, birth and death, finitude, finitude. Right? And we can go on Heidegger all day. Because things aren't born and they don't die, although they can turn away from each other. That if things come into the world as existence from mutual attention, if they turn away from it, each other, they cease to exist. Three, in turning away from each other, entities withdraw care for each other. So, for instance... The desert that mining is making in Australia, the desert they're making around two women sitting down, is not death. It's not the. If, if there's, it's not like oh, look, we're creating a condition in which there will be no life. The desert isn't that in which life does not exist. The desert is where a series of entities have turned away <coughs> from each other and have withdrawn care, the kinds of existence that we are. The desert said, you don't care. Well, the, the, the pre-desert said, you don't care. I turn away. I remove my conditions of care. Four, all of this interruption in the carbon imaginary depends on de-dramatizing human life as we squarely take responsibility <coughs> for what we're turning toward in a way. That is, there's a simultaneous necessity to de-dramatize birth and death and ours and whatever, and a responsibilization which might allow for the opening up of new questions. And the new questions would not be centered on the event, this birth, how did we get here, the one, the zero, or death, infinitude, and what's our ethical relation stance we take toward that, or are we... Dying is a planet dying. Is a planet being born? Is human dying? Is life dying? It's going to be just all the rock in the sky. But rather, the question would be that would be off the table. The question rather would be, what formations are we keeping in existence by mutually attending 